Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've mostly been crying at monkeys. Do you need to say this week... I've mostly been crying at monkeys. I don't want to put a time limit on it, Hannah. Okay. <laughs> I think it's going to continue. Why? What monkeys are you crying at? There's a programme on BBT2 called Orphan Baby Chimps or something along those lines, which is already like a tearjerker. And it's about some people in Liberia trying to build a sanctuary to save orphan chimps. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and this week I tried some vegan ham. Why? Uh, because it was in my centuries order by mistake. Oh, okay. And I was hungry. And it was kind of like lunch and meat, sort of texturally. Mm-hmm. But given that even after reading the ingredients, I still have absolutely no idea what was in it. It was kind of like Soylent Green, sort of psychologically. So basically you've eaten people, is that what Possibly. you're telling Possibly. That doesn't I sound very vegan to me. Well, quite. And I'm Jen Offord, and I've now been in the same room as Michael B. Jordan twice. Twice, guys. There's going to be some sort of restraining order. I mean... People are going to talk, aren't they? Mm. And by people, I mean me. I'm going to keep telling people. <laughs> Spreading rumours. <laughs> Later on, I chat to composer Naama Zissa, whose work has been performed as part of Manchester Jewish Museum's marking of Holocaust Memorial Day on January the 27th. As this is our last pod zine before that big Brexit date, we chat to campaign group The Three Million about what EU citizens living in the UK feel about the UK now and whether they will choose or even be allowed to stay in the UK post-Brexit. In Journey Off the Blocks, I'm chatting to Lisa O'Keefe from Sport England and Amma Abwezi, former England netball captain, about five years of This Girl Can, as well as the upcoming Netball Nations Cup. Little netball update, because obviously I joined a netball team. Uh, They put me as goalkeeper, first time I've played in 30 years, and we lost dramatically (laughs) eight goals to 20 goals. Apparently it wasn't just my fault. They seemed to think I'd done very well. And so now I'm getting them to encourage me in all of my life decisions. (laughs) And in DDD, we watch hermetically sealed disaster film, Contagion. But first, royal resignations, undue leniency and continuing biblical weather. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Well, I love a bong as much as the next woman. Oh, wait, I've misunderstood this, haven't I? Sure, put that away. (laughs) So, only two weeks since the last Bush Telegraph, and the UK has managed to endure yet another carnival of petty vindictiveness, contradictory views and media shithousery in the form of the royal resignation of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. As if Brexit wasn't enough. And speaking of Brexit, I'd like to know who brokered this deal between her Madge and her grandson, because we should get them onto Brussels immediately. Yeah, it's been pretty swift, hasn't, hasn't it? it? Mm. And everybody's come out smiling. Under a new arrangement announced at the weekend, Harry and Meghan will no longer receive money from the public purse, no longer have HRH titles and no longer carry out official duties on behalf of the royal family, which is about as clean a break as you can make. They're also to pay back money which was spent on their official residence before they moved into it. The decision by the Queen seems to ignore the advice of Daily Mail readers. What? To, to, and I paraphrase only slightly, keep that bitch in a golden cage and throw shit at her. (laughs) 
Buckingham Palace, as per, did not comment on matters of security, which I'm fairly sure will give the royal family's greatest critics cause to howl at the moon in the coming days. And by its greatest critics, I mean the people who claim to love the royal family. Mm, Yeah, interesting. Ironically, people who don't like the royal family have been largely supportive of the Sussexes, and I include myself here, because their departure raises an intriguing prospect one that's largely been obscured by putting edgelord actors on question time. (laughs) Because what happens here could be a blueprint for getting rid of all of them. Just saying. The Queen celebrated the announcement by being seen in public with Prince Andrew, which rather seems like celebrating getting your hand released from a vice by immediately sticking your left tit in there. (laughs) He likes an opportunity, doesn't he? eh? He really does. Snuck, Snuck back in there. Boris Johnson released a Trump-like statement talking about how the royal family have been around for ages, blah, 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 waffle, waffle. He's got to be pleased about the security issue, though, given it could all have gone a bit black mirror. And I'm pleased too. Knowing one Tory PM has had his cock in a pig is enough for me. Can we talk about Piers Morgan? I mean, obviously we have to. Do we have to? Like, this, this fucking obsession with Meghan Markle is... It's undignified, frankly. Like, it's, you know, as the kids say... Take your L and move on, Piers. That's enough, right? Just accept it. She doesn't want to be your friend. You should not be going on, like, Australian morning TV programmes talking about how you were right all along and it's you knew it was sinister. It's power, isn't it? Because he's got that platform yeah. and he's abusing it. But also, very interesting article in, I think it was The Observer or The Guardian this weekend, about basically the phone hacking scandal and how... All of these cases have been quietly paid off by, I can't remember who it was that used to own the Mirror or who currently owns the Mirror. Trinity. I think it's called, I think they're called Reach, whoever owns yeah, them now. Yeah, that is, that's the old school Trinity Mirror. Yeah. They changed their name, do you remember? Because I was like, it sounded like a shape the way you want it to be. <laughs> yes. Reach for the stars. Yeah. I like that song, don't tarnish it. And News International and how in all of these cases that are being quietly paid off, Piers Morgan's name is coming up quite a lot and also he's writing for the Daily Mail who are being sued by Meghan Markle for breach of privacy for publishing her ne'er-do-well father's letter. I think on the subject of Piers Morgan, I'm going to hand over to YouTube sensation Dave Wall, that's Dave and then W-O-L, who has made a sort of cassette boy version of Piers talking, (laughs) just simply entitled Massive Wimpy Baby. (laughs) Well worth a watch. The Crown Prosecution Service announced last week that it referred the case of Britain's most prolific rapist to the Attorney General under the unduly lenient sentence scheme. Reynard Sinaga was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison earlier this month after he was convicted of 159 sex offences, including 136 rapes. Too lenient, you say? That's a bit more than two months per offence. I mean, what they're complaining about. Absolutely, who knows? So... <sighs> For the attacks against a total of 48 victims, men who he drugged, assaulted and filmed while he did so, Judge Suzanne Goddard QC described Sinaga as an evil sexual predator who had shown not a jot of remorse. And yet... Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, said a whole life order should be considered, adding that Sinaga carried out an egregious number of attacks over a prolonged period of time, causing substantial pain and psychological suffering to his victims, adding that the court will now decide whether or not his sentence should be increased. Meanwhile, the 19-year-old at the centre of the Cyprus rape case has launched an appeal against her conviction of causing public mischief, for which she received a four-month jail term suspended for four years. 
She was convicted after she retracted claims that she was gang-raped in Cyprus last year following hours of questioning without legal representation. If you've not listened to last week's Podzine yet, Hannah spoke to Jane Smith, chair of the Mayor of London's Violence Against Women group, who explains the case and issues around it in more detail, and I recommend that you do. But here's hoping that her case, and women's cases in general, will now be taken as seriously as the victims of Sinaga were. That would be... I was going to say nice, but I meant just (laughs) (laughs) unprecedented, (laughs) maybe the word you were looking for. Let's go over to Australia, where climate change deniers must be finding it harder and harder to live in their ignorant bubble, particularly if that bubble is made of glass, given that giant hailstones have been smashing through office windows and car windshields in Canberra. As a huge part of the continent still burns, more than 80 fires are still blazing across New South Wales and Victoria, Melbourne and Canberra have been hit by heavy storms, with hail as big as golf balls falling in some areas. And the biblical devastation doesn't stop there. While Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland experienced heavy rainfall and floods in recent days, bringing relief to some blaze zones, strong winds have also generated terrifying dust clouds, temporarily blacking out the sky in New South Wales towns, including Orange and Dubbo. I've just got to say that Dubbo is the most Australian name for a town. (laughs) I've been to Dubbo. Have you? What's it like? Lucky sounds. Okay. Going back to that rainfall, which is, of course, good, but parts of southern Australia haven't even reached peak fire season yet. Dr Richard Thornton from the Bushfire and Natural Hazards Cooperative Research Centre said, History shows us that February is extremely dangerous. While the rain is important, it doesn't mean we're out of the woods. Our underlying conditions have been so dry that it won't take much to dry out the bush when the high temperatures and winds return. Right now, over here, when January and February are usually the coldest months of the year, we're in the midst of a mild winter. And that is chilling. I was looking at some pictures the other day of Melbourne because the Australian Open is, has just started mm. and there, it was qualifying there last week and all of the bull kids were, like, falling over, basically, because the air quality is so bad and it's yeah. really visible. And Novak Djokovic said, it's really sad to see all the bull kids struggling. <laughs> Hope it clears up. <laughs> Thanks, Novak. <laughs> Great. Wow. When I was in Australia, there was a, one of those um, storms where they got hailstones the size of golf balls. Um, it was It was an incredible thing to... Behold, uh-huh. and me being me, I was like in the street because I was like, "Why don't we get like weather? Weather that's actually like you know, whoa, weather rather than a bit drizzle." Three cars parked either side of my car were all written off, and mine wasn't. It was like slightly miraculous. And the next day, I lived in Manly in Sydney, and the next day I went down to the beach. The waves had been so enormous, and they just like crashed in because it's such a crazy storm that a load of jellyfish, and I mean hundreds of jellyfish, had been beached. And the entire of, like, Manly Beach was just covered in dead jellyfish. It was, like, really weird. It was really unnerving, but kind of exciting at the same time. Sort of biblical and quite scary. Yeah. Which clearly a thrill for Hannah. Yeah. (laughs) She's she's having a lovely time. Absolutely. Apart from that, would anyone like some good news? Yes, please. Okay, so as of this week, tampons... Sanitary pads and other period products will be freely available to all state schools and colleges in England. Hooray! This follows a commitment made by the Department for Education last year to provide free sanitary products in a bid to tackle period poverty, which led to more than 137,000 girls missing school because of their period in 2018, according to the National Education Union. It's a well overdue victory, and in no small part thanks to the likes of Amica George, founder of organisation Free Periods, and Gabby Edlin of Bloody Good Period for their tireless campaigning on these issues. Well done. Well done. 
More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we read the Daily Mail and therefore embrace our inner masochist. And by that, I mean look at some sexist nonsense of printed, then give ourselves a don't-listen-to-those-douche-books hug. Swiftly followed by a seriously, stop reading that cesspit, you massive jeb-end, slap around the face. Because what delights does it have in store this week? Well, in an absolute double whammy of a sexist headline, it turns out mothers weigh nearly three pounds more on average than childless women of the same age. You can't do right without weighing wrong, eh, birds? So, yeah, this story comes from a new report from the University of Cambridge, which analysed data from dozens of previous studies that tracked women's weight between the age of 15 and 35. Women is their word there. 15-year-olds are quite clearly Uh girls. The big news is we're all going to put on weight after the age of 15. Sorry, I just used the word news there when it clearly Uh isn't. During that time period, mums put on a staggering extra, brace yourself, child havers, three pounds compared to the selfish bitches who choose not to have kids. Fucking hell, I can put that on after a big tea. Yeah. Furthermore, and with a slight tone of surprise, the male reveals that becoming a father doesn't necessarily lead to weight gain. Who knew? I was just going to say... Wowzers. I was just going to say, looking at some of the dads I know, <laughs> that does not appear to necessarily be the case. Yeah, but it's almost like women biologically need to carry more fat than men in order to survive pregnancy in the first place. I know, I know. Stop reading the mail, Mickey, you massive jeb. Now, London. I want you to imagine I'm giving you that look that your mum did when she bought you that really expensive toy you've been nagging her for for Christmas and then you never played with it. If we're going to keep doing shows in London, we need you to turn up. And here's your chance. Consider it your Valentine's Day present to us because our next show is February the 14th where our guests will be actor and all-round gem Pauline Feckin McLean and political correspondent, comedian and withstander of Twitter twattage, Aisha Hazarika. So, if you want to spend Valentine's Day with a bunch of welcoming women, get yourself over to our website, standardissuepodcast.com. Hello, Mickey and I are in the studio and we are joined by Micah Bourne. Hello. Hello. Micah is here to represent the organisation The Three Million. And also awesome jewellery because she's wearing a beautiful tight divine necklace that says Kraut and Proud and I couldn't be more delighted. <laughs> there are only two in the world. <laughs> Perhaps the easiest other thing one. to start with is what the three million is and how, how it started, how you ended up getting involved. So it started like all things British in a pub after the referendum. <laughs> and I met a bunch of people I'd never met before in a pub in Bristol. We'd hooked up via common friends who put us in touch because all of us felt we needed to do something after this seismic shock of the referendum. And so we were a bit like the joke, a Frenchman, a German woman, a Polish. (laughs) And we sat around and what are we going to do? And my friend Nicolas, who's French, was a step further. He'd already started a Facebook group called The Three Million. He's a marketeer, so it's exactly what it says on the tin. It's about the concerns of the three million plus people who are sitting in the UK and don't quite know what the future will hold. And then out of that grew this now very professional organization I think just out of necessity I mean we didn't know what we were in for when we met but very early on we had an information event for people in Bristol so that's where it started and there was an immigration lawyer and she said to us look if you fall under UK immigration rules you are fucked 
And we all sat up and we hadn't really thought about what it meant not to be in the EU for our rights. And it very quickly transpired that our rights were in danger of wholesale removal and we would come under UK immigration rules. And we gradually came to realise that there was such a thing as a hostile environment for immigrants, non-EU immigrants. And our heart went out because it was something I had never thought about. I was here like a Brit, moving around the EU freely, studying, going wherever I wanted. And it had never occurred to me that that's a special right that could one day be taken away. We now have 45,000 members. We grew rapidly after some quite horrific things happened. So, for example, later in 2016, hundreds of EU citizens got these threats of removal letters sent in error. And at any time something like that was published, our membership skyrocketed because people were nervous. And my friend Monique, who had one of these letters, said, at that point I realized while we're still in the EU, I, I was safe. But once we're out, I can have a letter like that. And then what? Will mm. I have to leave the country? And so that's when we gradually became this big organization. We are now mostly volunteers, a couple of staff now paid through grants. We're getting crowdfunding and an immigration lawyer who's advising us because, you know, there might be a lot of legal action on the horizon, yeah. human rights, all kinds of things. So that's how we grew from people in a pub, then realizing this is a really big thing and it's not going to go away on the 31st of January, it's going to get a lot worse for EU citizens. Yeah, absolutely. What is the aim of the 3 million? Sorry, I should have said that first. It is very simple to allow EU citizens and their families to live life as before Brexit. And that's what was promised. And we, we had to tread quite a fine line because people would say, well, aren't you against Brexit? And we'd say, of course we are. But there are many, many organizations who are actively against (coughs) Brexit. And we're marching with them. We're almost an insurance policy because if Brexit happens, and we have to assume it would, what happens to EU citizens? So we're, we're kind of their safety net. We're fighting for the worst outcome. We Brexit, EU citizens lose the right and need a new immigration status. So we're kind of the only organization doing that. And that's our single aim, to make sure everybody is safe. Yeah, I guess there's been really confusing messages as well, because sometimes like the EU are our neighbours and our friends. And sometimes it's like, well, anyone who comes into this like sainted aisle as a scrounger and after the benefits and stuff. So which are you? You know, how how do you work that out? Yes, I think you've, you've summed it up why people feel confused and very, very angry, because everybody reads the papers and hears this stuff. And I saw red just before Christmas when when I saw Boris Johnson literally say that people like myself have made the UK their home for a bit too long. Oh, God. I just imagine what would happen if the head of state of my country of origin, Germany, if Angela Merkel said that about the Turkish people in, yeah. in Germany, all hell would break loose, but not here. For me, that was a point when I thought, this is just not good. That kind of comment from from the Prime Minister. That's kind of why we feel we need to fight on because there's something happening to public culture, the way we talk, what politicians get away, the the truth that gets mangled for political gains. And we're caught up in the middle of it. And, And as you say, people always wonder why we're not taking what ministers say on TV at face value. It's because of that. They say yeah. that one day, the mm-hmm. next day, yeah. you know, we're the scroungers again. A standard issue, we were very keen to not have Brexit. I don't like it. <laughs> 
And what I find is quite interesting that my reaction in May 2016, when we found out it was first going to happen, was absolute just woe is me, just awful. This is terrible. Then I suppose there was some hope that it might change. And then after December the 12th, we've had to accept that it's going to happen. I'm quite surprised by how strangely calm I feel, (laughs) given how upset I was at the first result. Has that happened to you? (laughs) Or uh, does at least knowing what's going to happen add something to your experience, as in at least I know what's what's coming? I think it's sheer exhaustion, but it's also cathartic. It's kind of we know at least one thing is removed from this insecurity and not knowing and it it has felt a bit like Groundhog Day both in terms of what happens with EU citizens and there's always hope and then the hope is dashed and then you think oh Parliament is going to vote on this amendment so that we get another referendum which I would have preferred as the least Mm. bad option Mm. because Mm. then I would have had some measure of closure here thinking okay you are going for it Brits okay we're going for it and without that closure it feels like we're going out with a wimp in a way despite the Big Ben may bong or not, you know, but it, it feels like we're going out with a whimper and, and people are exhausted. But on the other hand, we now know what we're up against. Yeah. It does feel like, you know, with some wars and they're like full on battles or you just read stories of medieval wars where they just basically surrounded a tower until everyone just went, oh, for fuck's sake, just make this stop. Siege warfare. Siege warfare. Yeah. 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 I knew that. I was just, you know, it's been dramatic. (laughs) Now, you sent me a study you've done. The results were out today, which is Monday, about the feelings of. EU 27 citizens currently living in the UK and I have to say it had the saddest word cloud attached to it that I'd ever seen unwanted anxious unwelcome humiliated it was absolutely heartbreaking oh God. Mm. I'm guessing that information wasn't a surprise to you no I mean it was a surprise how many felt like that even those who have got this new status we all have to apply for it's um, a settled status a settled status which is a bit of a, a, a minefield. We're very worried about people who don't apply by the deadline next summer. So, But even people who kind of got it, they say they feel a sense of relief because they've got this thing, but they still feel the anger and the grief. They don't trust it. They think it could be changed, taken away. And there is overwhelming grief. And what's really hurtful, I think, to lots of people, I've seen those discussions on our forum, is those who kind of sail through the process and also British people probably feel a bit embarrassed about the whole thing. They say, oh, but you'll be fine. Or you've got nothing to worry about. Brits, Britain will never, de- you know, just don't worry. And I think there are people who, who really resent that because they are grieving. They have those yeah. fears and worries. And we need to kind of be gentle and acknowledge and help them, you know. Well, well, I would actually say I've been quite the opposite because there was something really interesting in here. I know some people, I can't really say much more about it without their permission, who have lived in the UK for 20 years. They are Italians. And they believe that they are going to be able to stay here regardless and don't seem to think they need to fill out some paperwork. And I have been doing the opposite of what you said. I've been saying, oh, my God, they're going to throw you out. Fill in the paperwork. <laughs> Have you not heard of the Wimrush? Yeah. When I read your thing, apparently 7% of people don't think they need to apply for settled status, which is quite worrying. That's really worrying. And it, it's something the government is just ignoring. And we've been banging on their door for two years saying you need to do my outreach There are people, and it's for a variety of reasons. So some are students, and they think the university will take care of it. Uh, Some people have a piece of paper that says 
permanent residence, that paper is worth nothing after Brexit. But they don't necessarily know that because they don't follow it so closely. And then we have people who just have their heads down and work and they don't even read the papers. They just they just work. Uh, there's a Lithuanian carpenter I know. He'd never heard of settled status. He's not here unlawfully. He's just working hard mm. and, and kind of ignoring what's going on. And I think that's that's deeply, deeply worrying. There are also, which I hadn't known, 300,000 disabled EU citizens. And I've come across a woman, Marie, she is deaf-mute in a care home. No one even knows she's an EU citizen necessarily because they treat her as a very severe case of deaf-mute. So unless she has a relative or someone is clued up, if that woman doesn't get settled status by next summer, what will happen if she needs an operation in years to come or anything? Because... I don't know whether you know what the hostile environment is. It's just a way of moving the border inwards and making lots of people and organisation basically border control agents. So when you apply for a job, go to university, go to a hospital. Landlords, I imagine. Landlords, exactly. You have to prove your immigration status. So a lot of gatekeepers. There's a lot of gatekeepers, and some of them will not know, and they'll say, well, what do you mean this new status is digital? Show Show me photo ID. And, oh, no, you have to have this code and you have to log on and you have to... Oh, no, sorry, I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry, this mm. room isn't yours. So there's so much discrimination and heartache on the horizon that we've said you need to do more outreach, but also you need to be lenient with those who miss this deadline because it's a brand new scheme. It didn't exist three years ago. You don't even know how many people are in this country because the statistics have been called unreliable experimental so we say 3.4 million etc we have no idea who's in the can i ask how settled or what you understand of how settled status is going to work is that an automatic right to stay it's not and i think that's problem number one it was promised before brexit you will all be automatically get indefinite leave to remain but of course it's nothing like that basically you have to imagine that all our rights the rights we came to the UK having are going to be taken away and we have no immigration status. And we didn't come under UK immigration rules before Brexit. We were part of the EU. The, the, the rights British people have in the rest of the EU who are now also struggling to kind of live their lives. And I, I, I can talk more about what, what they're facing, which is equally unpleasant. So all that will be removed. And we have no immigration status. And we have to secure an immigration status. And that is this new digital settled status. But it is an application that can be turned down. And if you don't apply, you, you, you're considered as not having these rights. And so that's the bugbear. If you don't apply by the deadline, the government is very cagey about who they might allow to get this settled status later if they can prove they've been in the UK before Brexit. At the moment, they say that's the deadline. And unless you have very good reasons that they don't specify, you then fall under full immigration control. And that is, if you haven't got a status, you can't rent, work, access health care. So it's potentially a tricky situation for hundreds of thousands of people who will not apply by the deadline. And that's where the government just doesn't talk to us about these issues. They're just avoiding it. Instead, they're going on camera. Wherever we show up, they show up later to say it's a, it's a resounding success. And that's, that's, that's a catastrophe in the making. There must be an air of they're not really bothered if people fall through the net. Yeah. We don't quite know what motivates them, but you could you could well think that. There's just... 
it, it feels like it's the cheapest, most efficient way of processing millions of people. You just do it online centrally. And there is at the moment absolutely no regard for the 10%, 15% of people for whom this just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated by the fact that given that since the 70s, British people uh, have been living in Europe and Europeans have been living here, that you may have children who have one British parent and one European parent and perhaps they were born in a, th- a third European country. Yeah. So could, do we know what the rights of people under the age of 18 are going to be? They have to get settled status. So when the parent gets their settled status, then they apply for the kid and the kid must then get settled status if the parent has it. But of course, some lives are very messy. So if the parents are divorcing or there's an abusive relationship and the husband keeps the passport, it may well be that a lot of kids, for some reason, don't get this status before Brexit because their parents aren't applying or their parents think, oh, but he was born in the UK, so is he British? But he's unless that child has a British passport, they're, they're neither. And so there's going to be so much uncertainty not knowing do I need to do this for my kid as well but children under 18 their parents have to apply for them and they must get settled status because otherwise if they go to university in three years time they'll be asked you know have do you pay home fees what's your immigration status so so when when they want when they get a national insurance number well have you got a right to be here so we'll all be asked that and this is the interesting thing anyone in future and that worries me everyone who looks a bit different sounds a bit different they'll all be asked what's your immigration status yeah. prove it prove it much more than now and that will affect Brits as well it's already affecting Irish citizens they've already been asked some of them for settled status so a lot more people Irish people yeah. have been able to live in it just wander and live in this country over here but the, well, we're yeah. both descendants from, from the Irish. Have yeah. yeah. you got Irish passports? Yeah. Uh, uh, not yet. Yeah. It's only applying. You yeah. mentioned earlier that you got information on how it's going to affect British people living in other European countries. Is it the same deal? Well, the set of the bundle of rights is the same. So we're, we're two sides of the same coin, and it's been very much in the negotiations tit for tat. What they haven't got yet and we haven't quite got either, is this right to freely move around. So settled status is limited. You lose it when you leave the UK for five years. We wanted an unlimited right to come and go as as now because the promise was always the rights you have now would preserve, but it didn't work out like that. And so in a way, the UK government was more concerned restricting our rights than preserving the rights of Brits in the EU27. So by it's cutting, like they didn't think about they it. They didn't, no. By cutting us back, the rights of Brits are now reduced. And I can give an example. My friend Jane, she lives in Berlin. She's a lawyer. But it's the same for musicians. They have this problem very acutely. She works sometimes in Brussels, sometimes in France. At the moment, she only has the right to stay and live and practice in Germany like I have the right to be in the UK. She hasn't got what's called onward freedom of movement. So... She is, in a way, stuffed if, if her work means she has to work in other EU countries. And musicians have that. Cater- people work in catering, all, all kinds of industries. They need to move around. They, they, they don't have that. So that onward freedom of movement is, is, is part of the second round of negotiations now going forward of trade and of all of this. But it looks very unlikely that they'll keep that. And so a lot of their lives will be massively affected. Yeah. Massively can I ask what your your best piece of advice for someone who 
is an EU citizen living currently in the UK who is worried about the future? Is it go to Scotland? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's important that they do apply for settled status. I don't think we get out of that. I think it would be good if they joined the 3 million or at least subscribe to our free newsletter because that gives them an update on latest campaigns. You know, we're pushing constantly to make this better and safer. And if they are in trouble, they need to come to us and we can highlight cases in the media. We also talk to the Home Office. We lobby the lords. We lobby politicians, MPs. We, we have a big voice. And I think that's what's under threat here. It's not even clear whether we can vote in next May's local elections. That's not covered by all of this. That's at the discretion of the UK government. So, so some of us fear that they have no say about their bin collection, let alone what might happen to them in this country. So I think I'd say get settled status. If you run into problems, contact the three million you know, we, we are here to, to give you a voice and to collect these complaints. We might take legal action in future. We already have got two legal challenges against the government. So, so find us online and, and join us. But do apply for settled status and kind of spread the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what about the rest of us? What can we do to stop you all being sent home? <laughs> you can support us financially. I mean, that's important because we are mostly volunteer run, but we have to collect quite a few funds to take legal action when necessary. So we have a a legal action uh, against the government for data protection and for depriving us of voting in the last European Parliament elections. So, you know, we always need money for our campaigning, for train fares to Brussels, train fares to Westminster. So, So if you can, give us some money, join us. But also, very importantly, look out for EU citizens, any foreigner really, because I think we're just the last in line, you know, I now make a point of, I smile at people who are looking different who are, it's just look out for each other and uh, EU citizens amongst your friends who say, I'm really worried, don't just say oh you'll be fine, just have a chat and say why are you worried about and what can we do and call things out when, when when you hear people being racist I had a woman in my street looking at my EU sign in the window that my son painted saying well they should just go Call that out. I had an EU sign in my window. And I'm born in in Wigan. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't want to go back to Wigan. Don't name me. None of us do. (laughs) It sounds a bit naff and Cameronish, but it's not hug a a US citizen. But (laughs) we we need to rebuild our communities and friendships. And, you know, go into a Spanish deli that you haven't been before and saying, hi, how are you? And, and, And... yeah, I think we need to reconnect at the local level and look out for each other at that level. And any form of racism, as I said, EU citizens, we've had it so good. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for coming in. Are you, you're on Twitter. People can follow you there. We are on Twitter. Very Brilliant. vocal. Okay. Please follow us. Okay, what's your handle there? It's the number three million. Just one word. The number three million. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, Micah. Thank you very much. Hello, Mickey here. Ahead of Holocaust Memorial Day on January the 27th, I caught up with Israeli composer Naama Zissa. Her work, Love Sick, is being performed by Peter Braithwaite as part of Manchester Jewish Museum's marking of not only Holocaust Memorial Day, but also 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. 
Manchester Jewish Museum is currently based at Manchester Central Library and you can find out more about what's happening on January the 27th and indeed for the rest of the year by visiting manchesterjewishmuseum.com. I kicked off by asking Nama what she's been up to since her residency at the Royal Opera House. I finished residency last year, actually, with the premiere of my opera. It's a unique program. Basically, it's a collaboration between a music conservatory and an opera house, one of the only collaborations like that in the world. So I've done the opera premiere, which was last year, and that followed by a a PhD submission. So I've just literally a couple of weeks ago uh, passed my Bible and received a PhD. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and at the moment this year, I'm going to work on a number of dance pieces, actually, contemporary dance. Some of them are in the UK, and one of them will be in America and Michigan later this year. And the recordings we're going to do here in the UK um, in order for the piece to be able to tour later in the winter. So I'm working on that. And obviously, towards March, um, uh, writing um, a new cycle for Peter uh, for the museum. Well, let's go on to that then. So Monday the 27th of January is Holocaust Memorial Day and it's also the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz and a piece of your music is being performed at the Manchester Jewish Museum to mark the occasion. Could you tell us a little bit about the piece and what it means, please? Yeah, so this is the piece that was um, originally commissioned by an institute called EVO which is an archive and a greater institute for Jewish research um, in New York. Uh, and a year ago in December, they commissioned me to write this piece, which was part of a program centered around the Song of Songs, which obviously is found in, in the last section of the Bible, uh, mm-hmm. the Old Testament. And it's a collection of, of love poems, and they perform works that related to it. And as two composers basically to write two new commissions, and also a piece by David Lang, um, the American composer, from the Song of Songs as well. I've chosen a piece called Love Sick. I like that piece because in general, the songs of songs, I think they're unique within, obviously, the, the whole Bible in the sense that they they don't do any teachings or law, but instead they kind of explore love. And I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's I think it's quite a unique thing. And, and what I also like about it is that the protagonist is a woman in all of the songs. And I like that song in particular because there are many interpretations and Kabbalistic interpretations. And the the first line is, I'm asleep and my heart is awake. And it starts with this kind of disjunct and what it means being awake in in a body that is asleep. And it has a lot of allegories to the Israelites' relationship with God in the desert. But also the Kabbalah looks at in the sense of the relationship with oneself uh, basically and it talks about focus and intention and what happens in the song is quite simple Um, a woman is at night at home and her lover knocks at the door and she's being delayed every time and it happens like seven times until she finally opens there's no one there she goes out to the city in the middle of the night to look for her lover and she doesn't find him and all the time she goes a bit mad and the guards find her and she says, if anyone finds my lover, tell him that I've, I've gone mad, that I'm, I'm lovesick. And it's, it's quite a simple thing, but it, over time it was interpreted in many quite interesting and ambiguous ways. And I quite like that kind of openness to it. And obviously the text is really beautiful. So I, I went with that. And despite the fact that the protagonist was a female, I um, composed it to baritone. And it uses kind of like different sections of the, 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 the range of the voice. It was performed last year when I went up to the Manchester Museum and I've had a look with Laura throughout the, the archives um, materials. We saw a lot of kind of correspondence between one of the survivors and her lover and her family 
and we kind of thought that that song could relate to the idea of kind of exploring love in darkest times. Towards March, I'm going to start working with Peter on a new piece on a, on a song cycle that would be directly related to some of the materials um, in the archive. I've heard Lovesick. I heard it or a snippet of it on the internet mm. and it's beautiful. It's really, oh. it's really haunting, <laughs> which seems fitting for Holocaust Memorial mm. Day. How important is it to you as a composer and as a Jew to have your music involved in this occasion? I feel actually quite lucky to do this because throughout my residency with the Opera House, I did an opera that explored the relationship between operatic singing and cantorial singing, mm-hmm. which is, is a form of a strange form or kind of doppelganger of operatic singing within Orthodox Judaism. So I've done a lot, a lot of research on Jewish identity within that stream of, of music, of vocal music. And a lot of that research, I mean, there was so much of it. And I, I spoke to a lot of people and traveled to community and to archives. And obviously, you know, a lot of it kind of intuitively went into the piece. But there was a lot of research done that I didn't have the chance to express enough I feel lucky for two reasons, I guess, to to do this, because A, it gives me an opportunity to keep on exploring these territories within my work, which I don't, I didn't get a chance to do that before. Also because I left my home, I left Israel um, 10 years ago, and since then I I didn't get a chance to to participate in in anything like that, so I feel quite... um, I, I feel quite privileged to do that, yeah. You were saying that you'll be using survivors' testimonies. That must be pretty hard yeah. reading. It is. As part of the research I was doing, I, I, I made some connections with a number of archives, actually, uh, um, in Israel and in New York, and, and spent some time. So it's not, it's not a, a new thing to me. I think the experience in the museum was incredibly striking because a lot of it is not, it's not just about um, the war, but it's it's a lot of kind of um, very personal details of life, I think, and, uh, and you know communities and kind of like the daily things which I found incredibly moving and, and personal and and intimate. And there are a lot of kind of what I found interesting that there's a lot of um, objects that are kind of fashioned like a chair or um, some records or different things that were donated to the museum over time and, and we are thinking of how to explore them to kind of like uh, evoke an environment which is more immersive within kind of programs of Holocaust Memorial which I find super fascinating and interesting so it's a different way for me to explore archives. It's fascinating and as somebody who hands up here has no idea how you would go about composing a piece of music could you explain a little bit about the process of taking your research and making it into a beautiful piece of music? <laughs> it's a difficult question. Just give me the magic. <laughs> I think I don't know the answers that myself. I think with every piece, it's um, it's completely different. It really depends what it is. And, uh-huh. and obviously my process for, for making, um, writing an opera or um, working with a choreographer is very, very different, like completely different. But in all cases, it will start with, you know, having a, um, a source of inspiration or a subject matter, whether that's a text or a more abstract idea that I will explore over time and kind of collect information and and build a whole world around it. And then I would either go into rehearsals and with a choreographer and further develop it in in the studio, or if I do a commission, then I would just go on my own for a few months, disappear, and then finish it. Um, so I think it's it's very yeah it's very very different depending on on the process. Obviously, opera is a completely different thing because it's um, bound to a story and, and there's the back and 
force work with the librettist and, and so on. So there's no, I, I don't have one process, actually. Um, I was hoping you'd give me an answer so I could start composing, <laughs> but no. Um, <laughs> so I'd just like to talk about composing in general, but women in particular. Mm. So the Oscars is getting a lot of stick for lack of diversity, mm. and rightly so. But Joker composer Hilda Guthnardotia, I think I'm saying mm. that right, earned her first Oscar nomination, which yeah. makes her one of only seven women in the award show's history to be put up for Best Original Score. Mm. Are you finding that things are changing for women in the world of composing? Very much so, I think so. I mean, it's 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 a very slow progress in a, quite an incredibly hard journey, but I do feel that there's more awareness and, and openness to the subject. And I think the fact that there's some sort of awareness is, is already uh, a step forward. And I think in the next few years, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll keep on seeing, I think, the kind of like the balance changing a lot. And I think things like that with the Joker and the Oscar nominations are incredibly impactful and important. So I, I, I am being optimistic. I was going to ask what more you would like to see happening. Uh, I mean, I think it really depends. I think in, in especially film scoring, I think it's it's improving more and more. I think in opera, uh, you know, we, we need to see more of the change. Um, I think the balance between male to female and not just in composing actually directing uh, and other operatic fields um, I think is still not there mm-hmm. I think that opera uh, needs to make a, a huge step forward in the gender equality and, and also the type of stories that are told in opera houses um, and so on so for me that's something that still needs to change quite drastically but I think it's important to to keep on doing it uh, and to kind of give room for different stories, different voices and kind of different work that is being put out there. I think for some people, and I'm going to include past me in this, (laughs) I I think they're a little bit scared of contemporary music. Mm, Yeah. Is there anything you could say to encourage people to to give it a try or where they could start to find their ear for it? Yeah, sure. I actually think that London is one of the best places to explore that because I think a lot of um, institutions, and that's including the opera houses, and a lot of orchestras have concerts on that are really affordable, actually. You can go to the opera house to see contemporary operas um, for not very much. You can't say the same thing about the Met Opera, for example. There's no way you could find you know, a, a ticket for £10, like a standing ticket or anything like that. And I think a lot of orchestras here actually make a huge effort to kind of give room to the next generation. There's a lot of support for young composers, and I don't see that in other places um, or in other countries. So I think it's very easy to to try to explore. I would just recommend to to give it a go. <laughs> I mean, to check to check to check <laughs> programs: the Opera House, um, the London Symphony Orchestra, the LCO, the Aurora Orchestra. All of, all of these young orchestras, and many of them, that are doing wonderful things. And I think it's it's simply just going online and looking up and, and giving it a go. And where can people find out more about you and your work online? I have a website which actually I need to update uh, and that will happen very soon. But otherwise, there's stuff online um, and on my website as well. Um, there'll be some performances soon and later in the year, so that will all be updated in, in the next coming weeks. Norma, thank you so thank much you. for sparing some time <laughs> to talk to me and good luck with all of your work in the forthcoming months. Thank you very much. 
All right, it's Janet. Sorry to interrupt your listening experience. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Lisa O'Keefe, Director of Insight at Sport England. Hi, Lisa. Hello, Jen. How are you doing? I'm very good. We are at the, what are we calling it, the, the fifth birthday event of the This Girl Can campaign? Absolutely. We are celebrating five years of This Girl Can. And as I said this morning, no birthday cake, but a wonderful new hard-hitting ad and some more great women telling real stories. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the campaign we've just been chatting about it now it's been described as trailblazing and unique we've just heard that four million women have taken action as a result of the campaign three million have started or come back to exercise that's astonishing isn't it well we're pleased (laughs) to be honest that the success of the campaign has come out of the fact that it's it's very much built out of the research of talking to women about the very real challenges and barriers they face when it comes to sport and physical activity. So we learnt early on that the big barrier for women is fear of judgment. So that's concern about whether they're going to be good enough. So if I turn up at that session, will I stick out because I'm not as fast as everybody else, I can't catch, I can't throw, you know, so am I, am I going to be good enough? We also worry about our appearance. Sport and physical activity can be quite exposing in many ways, can't it? You know, often lycra clad, uh, often in very public spaces. So there is a, a, a worry and a concern that we won't fit the kind of perceived stereotype of what somebody should look like if they're active and then a lot of women talk about a fear of just taking that little bit of time out for themselves that in some way it's wrong to prioritize themselves when they have lots of other commitments and particularly when there's family commitments so what we try to do with this girl can is to call out that fear of judgment and I think what's really important is to explain to women who see the ad that this is a thing but you're not the only one that feels like this most women do and will have a version of fear of judgment and those who are active find a way of managing that fear by the activities that they take part in the places they go the people who they they train with yeah i mean i think that's absolutely true one of the things that once i got my head around it made a real difference for me with exercise was realizing that no one cares they're all too busy caring about what they look like you are so true honestly i was in the gym on saturday Uh, i was on the exercise bike And such as I am, I was sweating quite a lot. And I honestly, I looked around the gym and no one else was sweating. And I felt super self-conscious. And then I looked around the room and I thought, I honestly had this conversation with myself that said, Lisa, don't be daft. You know nobody's looking at you. You know everybody's doing their own thing. And I honestly scanned the gym for 10 minutes. Not one person cared a jot about what I was doing and how I looked. But even though I know this and this is my day job, I still felt really quite awkward initially in the gym because of that. I think it's, you know, it's good to remember that we all have those kind of insecurities and hang-ups. One of the things we've been talking about a lot is the way that social media, for example, can be a great force for good. Like, for example, with this campaign, sharing images of a more diverse range of women. But also, I mean, I could spend like 
five minutes on Instagram, fall down like a Kardashian wormhole and feel like a slug. Do you think that's having a negative impact on people? Social media is is fantastic in many respects and and a lot of women say to us that when it comes to sport and exercise and particularly when you're trying to find ideas and motivation that social media is fantastic it's a great source isn't it because if you only think about going to the gym or going for a run and you don't know what else is available then getting on the the internet or getting onto social media will just open your eyes to what's out there but you're also true to say Jen that done badly it can have a really negative impact. And a lot of women that we've spoken to who do see those images have said exactly that. It makes them feel bad about themselves because we instantly compare ourselves to those images. And I guess we're in the place we were in in 2015 when we launched the Skullcan, when we were talking about the advertising industry, showing diversity and telling it as it is and, and being really real in the images and the stories. The same has to be true of social media. It's such a wonderful tool that, to be used, but we need those real, honest articulations of the challenges and we need to see more diversity in terms of the images of women. Sport and exercise, and it's not just the preserve of the, the young, fit and talented. They're really important to me, of course they are. But what really, really matters to me is that every woman in this country feels that she can be active and that she can find a place and a space where she can feel comfortable and she can move more. And that's what we're trying to do with the Skullcan. So how do we change it? How do we change the game, so to speak? Do we flood the internet with pictures of ourselves looking sweaty after we've been on the treadmill or, or whatever? Well, it's really interesting because, again, we asked women if they'd be prepared to share images of themselves on social media. And the vast majority, almost 90% of us said, oh, I wouldn't do that because, you know, people wouldn't be interested. But then when we asked women, well, would you be interested if you saw images of your friends being active, showing what they're doing, showing how it is? They said yes. So uh, I would encourage women to, to share those images on Instagram. I would encourage conversations. If you've seen this girl can, if you've seen the ad, if you've seen some of the materials and you think, actually... I should do something, I would like to try something. If you've seen the indoor climbing and thought, oh, I'd love to do that, then please talk to your friends. See if you can find at least one mate who will be brave enough to give it a go with you because that's what it's all about. Lisa, if we want to engage with the campaign other than obviously watching it on our TVs, if we do want to flood the internet with pictures of ourselves after a, a little scamper around the indoor climbing wall, is there a hashtag or anything like that or where can we find you guys? Okay, so the hashtag is hashtag thisgirlcan. We also have a website, so thisgirlcan.org.uk. If you go onto that website, you will find out more about the wonderful women who have featured in this campaign, but you'll also find an activity finder. So if you're thinking, ah, 2020, new decade, maybe try something a wee bit different, get on that activity finder, have a wee look, see if you can find something and give it a go. Lisa, thank you so much. Pleasure, Jen. I am joined by former England netball captain Amma Abwezi. Good pronunciation. We've just seen you chatting on a panel just now with a bunch of other people. Why did you want to get involved with this campaign? Yeah, I think it's great. I think women are not encouraged enough to get active and do stuff. And so when the campaign launched the first time, I was impressed. And I think so many people were. It was incredible. And so I was happy to be asked to be involved. And if I can help women to 
get active, feel better about themselves, then I'm happy to be involved. One of the things I've just heard you chatting about, I'm sure everyone that's interviewed you today has said the same thing. We were talking about body consciousness and body positivity, that you feel conscious of your arms, which is like crazy because I'm looking at your arms and I just want to touch them. I won't because it would be weird. But, I mean, it's just interesting to me that even sort of elite athletes have these hang-ups. Yeah, I think people think that if you're an elite athlete, you're just the perfect example of training and motivation and looking amazing. And that's not necessarily the case. We are just like everyone else. And so sometimes it's hard for me to get out of bed. Lots of times I don't want to train. And it's just how I manage to overcome that. Yeah, my arms have been a big deal for me since growing up. Um, I was really skinny when I was growing up and my sisters used to pick on me because I was a stick. And then suddenly I developed muscles and then I realised that that was also not... Well, it didn't seem that great in society. And people always stare at me. Sometimes people think I'm a man and stuff. And so I've just grown up. It'd be negative to look how I look, except in a sporting context. And so I basically just have a complex about my arms and I cover them up all the time. And I was discussing jackets with my sister and saying, no, I need to find some more jackets because I don't have enough and the ones I've got are old. And I didn't find one for today, so I had to go sleeveless. We judge each other a lot and it's mostly based on how we look. But I think society has projected certain images of how we should look or what's normal. We grow up with those and then get accustomed to them and think that because we're not like that, then there's something wrong with us. I've sort of grown up trying to um, think about my body in terms of netball, in terms of it's doing a job or trying to do a job and so I have to make it the best it can be to do that job which is to play netball and perform and so I want to be stronger and I want to be faster and so that my body might start looking a certain way because of that and that's okay. Netball is predominantly played by females. I think it's a great sport because there's different shapes, different sizes, different heights, different athletic abilities and netball accommodates all of those and I think as a society we just need to accept that people do come in all shapes and sizes and so we just need to start accepting them and thinking that that's normal. And I just want to say Amazon's uh, no, are amazing. I wish I had arms like that. Anyway, I just wanted to ask, because I've got you here, expert that you are, the Nations Cup in netball is starting on the 19th of January, and that's going to be England, Jamaica, South Africa and New Zealand who are playing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Do you fancy England's chances? You've got, obviously, a bit of a change of regime. Tracy Neville's gone. You've got a new boss in charge of the team now. Yeah, so Jess Thilby's taken over. Um, the England team toured South Africa in November and won this series 2-1. So they started well. There is quite a few new personnel. And so this is the first test on home soil. It's going to be quite a challenge. Jamaica have actually selected a really good team. And they didn't perform well at the World Cup. So I think they've got a few things to prove. We nearly lost them at Commonwealth games in 2018 and so if they perform how they can I think England have a bit to keep an eye out for there. We beat South Africa 2-1 recently so hopefully we can beat them again but I think they might have had their vice captain missing before so again some things to watch out for and New Zealand won the World Cup um, but have had a couple of retirements. I actually think it's just a great series to test out where we are. We have a new crop of players coming through and we need them to have exposure and so hopefully it will be great exposure for those people and actually we can still win games. I don't want to say whether we're going to win or come first or second or third or whatever but I think just exposing our new or less experienced players to 
those combinations of teams and I think a lot of the time you play isolated tech series against one team and it's the same style whereas if you then go to a Commonwealth Games you play a different team every day and they play different types of styles and so the Nations Cup is great because today you'll play say New Zealand and then tomorrow you might play Jamaica and it's two different styles so you've got to adapt your game very quickly in a short space of time. The great thing is it's on home soil and so everyone can get their netball fix just before the netball super league domestic competition starts hopefully england will do well and that will just spur people on to keep supporting netball well i mean speaking of exposure obviously the games change massively like you can watch this whole tournament on sky a lot of the netball tournaments that have been on recently have been available to watch on sky this is all brand new this certainly wasn't the case like when i was younger growing up how important do you think that is yeah i think it's great i think you constantly see a narrative of football out there and so Lots of boys and girls probably say, I want to be a footballer, and that's because that's what they see. The more you see things, the more accessible they are. So hopefully we'll grow up with an array of girls saying, oh, I want to be a netballer. They see it on TV, they want to play. And I think just to get people an opportunity to watch different sports, not just football. The women's football is doing amazingly and has great viewing figures, and I think that's great. And so I think just getting female athletes on TV for everybody to see is what to a winner. Emma, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome. Hi, Hannah here, just interrupting to tell you that you may already be aware that this week is Cervical Cancer Prevention Week. And you can find out loads more about that by using the hashtag smear for smear on Twitter. On Monday, when we were in the studio, we had some of the team from the brilliant Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust in to talk to us about it. And it will be this week's Sunday Chops. So keep your ears peeled for that. We talked about why people don't want to go for smears. We talked about the stigma around HPV. And we talked about how we can make as many people as possible know that they can actually reduce their risk of the disease. So that will be coming up on Sunday, which you can either A, choose to listen out for and check in on and check on Twitter, or a much more practical use of your time would be to press subscribe now on wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. And it will be waiting for you. Easy when you know how, innit? Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster did we survive this week? This week we watched Contagion, a film that I knew not a thing about before I watched it. I do sometimes Google stuff first. And it led to me writing a joke in here, you can actually see it in my notebook, that this was like a disaster film as done by Paul Thomas Anderson. And then about 20 minutes in, I actually crossed that out and wrote, this is like a disaster film done by Steven Soderbergh. And it wasn't until the end that I realised it actually is a disaster film by Steven Soderbergh. And I thought that 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 was a funny joke, which kind of sums up my feelings about this film. Also, it's the world we live in now, Hannah. You can't satirise anything. No, absolutely (laughs) not. And I found a review from The Atlantic, and it said that this film is beyond good or bad, beyond criticism, it just is is and that is actually how I feel about this film I think that sums it up quite well it's just there I neither liked it nor disliked it I neither thought it was good or bad I just thought I've watched it and now it's that's over so the reason I chose it is because Mm -hmm. when we started doing disaster films I did a little bit of research and it kept coming up in the top 25 disaster films ever and I would argue with that status it's kind of like a documentary. Yeah. I don't know what... Well, do you know what? Why is I it actually, there? Why does it exist? I actually think, if you're interested in, and I am, epidemiology, looking at how things get... I don't know why I got interested in this, 
But if you're interested in looking at what happens when diseases like swine flu or Spanish flu or whatever mm. like get hold, you'd be better off tracking down the HBO film version that they made of And the Band Plays On because that is actually literally based on what did happen. It's a non-fiction book about uh, the outbreak of AIDS. So it's got all of this stuff. It's got CDC. It's got how the government work. It's got how scientists work. It's got all of that. And it's true. So I'd actually advise someone to watch that instead of watching this personally. But hang on. There's a documentary version of the massive hardback book that you lent me. There's not. No, no, no. There's not. There's a there's an HBO film that they made of the documentary book. Okay. so it's got actors playing the real but it's based... What I'm saying much. is I can watch it rather than read, read it. You don't have to read that whole book, yeah. <laughs> it's very heavy. Yeah. I don't and know where in you'll content find and indeed I'm just I'm not sure wait. where you'll find a copy of it. Because I actually think the stuff's interesting. But this mm. felt like exactly that, like watching a documentary, but that said it wasn't true. So I thought, well, what's the point of watching a documentary that's not true? Yeah. Anyway, that was my feelings about it. Um, it's pretty star-studded, though. Yeah. Well, here we go. Gwyneth Paltrow, which I, I, I instantly booed and then immediately hurrayed because she only laughs about 30 seconds in this before she dies. Jude Law, who, as you all know, I find utterly, utterly terrifying. There's something quite sinister about Jude Law and we'll get onto his dodgy accent in this. Good. Lawrence Fishburne. What the fuck? <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne. John Hawke. You hear John Hawke's voice for about two minutes before you see his face and I was like oh John I can like that man when he turns around it's going to be John Hawks this is great and then he's basically not really in it again which is a bit of a disappointment Kate Winslet Elliot Gold Brian Cranston Marion Cotillard Jennifer Ely who I actually think is the best thing in this Matt Damon Matt Damon. Um, Matt Damon. He really looks Matt Damon in he it as well, doesn't he? A little tangent. I started watching The Irishman last night and there's an actor in it and I said to Gary, I said, I have looked up this actor before and found his name simply by writing Fat Matt Damon. <laughs> and I can't remember his name. Oh, I know name. who you mean. You mean the guy from um, from Friday Night Lights? Jesse... He plays... Um, I know you mean. He's in The Social Network. He's in... Breaking Bad, he's in the last series of... He plays Todd in... He's married to uh, Kirsten Dunst. He's actually... No, well, that's oh, not it, I thought. Really good. Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons, there, there you go. There we go. He does look like a fat Matt Damon. Yeah, though. he does. Anyway, so the long and short of this is there's a, a, a virus, like a flu-type virus, like H1N1 or whatever. Now, if this film had been made like 10 years later, like the rise of anti-vaxxing might actually make this feel like it had more to say, but it's... Mm obviously overshot that. It's why we should never let pigs meet bucks. Well, yes, quite. Because at the end, see, it comes with the interesting premise that it starts from day two. And I was like, I wonder what happened on day one. I wonder what happens on day one. And then right at the end, you actually see what happens on day one and you see a bat. And I thought, oh, it's going to fly off on fucking pig. <laughs> but it didn't. A bat with David Cameron's face. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably the film with the highest death toll that we've, we've ever seen because I think it, well, possibly apart from that one with the 2012 when the whole world was wiped out. But, um, yeah, that was quite big. Yeah. yeah, but I thought, yeah, I thought it was odd. I, I can't put my finger on it. I was kind of on board with it right up to uh, the point that I wasn't, and the point that I wasn't is when they started playing with or without you, <laughs> and then I was like, no, I'm done. I am genuinely done. It's the I'm only U2 with... song I like. Really, I think it's the it's worst U2 song. What when they had the prom? When they had the fake prom. I mean. And then you saw Jennifer Ely just smiling at the virus through the window, and it was all a bit weird. We've all done it. Yeah. Because um, the fact is, they, they could totally live without it. <laughs> with or without you, it was definitely without was better. Yeah, yeah. exactly. What an odd choice of song. I mean, I think it was, uh, from what I can gather, it was relatively scientifically good. 
as in... It Damn it, Jen. I, yeah. I mean, I believed Lawrence Fishbourne. Yeah, I mean, the CDC are generally regarded as a, like, a pretty well-respected organisation. Like, so that seemed to be quite, you know, the only thing that Lawrence Fishbourne really did wrong was warn his wife that it was coming, and that seemed like a very human response. So it wasn't like criticising any organisations mm, I thought that was quite an interesting moral dilemma because mm. I don't know anyone who wouldn't warn the person that yeah. they care about or the people they care about. That must be really hard. And obviously John Hawkes is part of that resolution. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I don't... I mean, what did you think? Did you enjoy it, Jen? Yeah, I sort of feel the same way as you, really. I neither liked nor disliked it. I, I don't feel like I made any tangible gains from watching it nor do I feel like I lost that much do you know what I mean? Since you're the person that's got accents on your list mm. I'd like to know what accent you actually thought that was that Jude Law was in, was it Australian? I, <laughs> I thought it was it Australian and I, I wondered I just thought, but parts of it seemed a bit cockney, Yeah, I think it was supposed to be Australian and so I just kept thinking throughout did he really need to be Australian and if so could you not just have gotten an Australian actor? Given Hollywood is about 75% Australian actors at the moment. Because this is fucking yeah. awful. It's, I don't know, we'll probably talk about this on Outside the Box at some point, but I don't know if you have watched any of White House Farm. At some point, we're going to need to talk about Stephen Graham's Welsh accent. A couple of things that he says, Jude Law, ugh, Jude Law, the one, when he walks out of the office shouting, the print media is dying. But my favourite bit I've actually written down where he talks about informed discussion on the blogosphere. And it's just worst thing that anybody's ever said in a film I think yeah I think he is neither Australian nor Cockney he's just someone really into Dick Van Dyke's films yeah that's what it is it's pretty whatever it is it's fucking awful yeah but it's sort of a film that ends with Matt mm. Damon crying alone in a cupboard and uh, I, I don't know what to say <laughs> and I'm on board so it's yeah. on absolutely Let's go to the list. I don't think any of us have done especially well. I'm going to take so many traffic jams because there were an awful lot of those. There were. I think you say, I'm going to take it. No, it, it was true. It's yeah. true. Thing you can't do, meaning you would definitely die in this film. I mean... Make vaccinations. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure since the vast majority of the population does appear to die in this film that I'm going to say I probably would die, but there's not a specific thing. <laughs> I'd like to think I'd be the Matt Damon, like, really robust immune system. I was ill while I was watching it, mm. and it was terrifying. I just kept thinking, when when did I meet Gwyneth Paltrow? I, I think I've got one. I think I've got so many traffic jams, and that's it. Really? Which just goes to show this is not, I suppose, a stereotypical disaster film. Mick, do you think you've done well here? I think I've got two. Wowzers! I think I've got Nature, You Cruel Mistress. It happened through bats, nature. Bats, bats, pigs. Feeding or fucking pigs, I mean. Feeding. Or fucking, we don't know. Do you think it went back? <laughs> he dropped a thing. We saw it at the I end. Know, yeah, I know. That, maybe is... that was just like their first date. Yeah. <laughs> They're happily married now. I mean, that was. I was thinking about a Brexit analogy somewhere along the, the pig fucking lines, but um, I couldn't think of one. Anyway, Mick. So I've got Nature You Cool Mistress, and I'm going to take, if it's okay with you guys... Captain willing to go down with ship because Lawrence Fishburne was ready to give up his vaccination Jennifer, to John Hawke. Jennifer Ely's char character actually vaccinates herself. Yeah, that's so true. So she would. Oh, that reminded me so much of the best fun we've ever had in Donnevie Does Disaster. The it reminded swarm. me of the swarm. <laughs> I was like, is she going to see a giant bee? Yeah. This would be amazing. Um, it absolutely could not be a porn film title or certainly not one that anyone should be watching. Oh, dear. That's it.
Yeah, oh, wait, I mean, wait, Kate Winslet. I've got three. Hang on, haven't we already seen this guy in a disaster film? There's bound to be a Brexit analogy in there somewhere, but I haven't thought of one. Um, I don't think you can have it unless you've thought of one. No, that's why oh, I said okay. I don't think. But I, I might, thought I might of think one. of one. Carry on talking. While okay. Um, <laughs> I can't really have piss poor English accent, although, well, who fucking knows what that was supposed to be? There were a lot of helicopters. Yeah. There were a lot of helicopters, so I'll have that. There were some sobbing children, so I'll have that. Was there a false... That to the bit at the end, I wasn't sure if that was like, but wait, this could happen again, or if that was just like, this is what happened. It was just, this is what okay. happened. It's just day uh, it one. Was, it was basically a long advert about why you should always wash your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Don't yeah. Eat, those, also, don't eat peanuts on a bar. Those peanuts at the beginning, like, that first well, most shot... Most bar peanuts allegedly covered in... Oh, yeah, like piss. piss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, which is why that was like the shot of nightmares. It really... I found it quite disconcerting. Did the disaster save his and his kids' relationship? I don't think it did. I think no, they already had an all right. Solid. So I think I've got two, basically. Okay, right. Fight to the death over who picks no, the No, I think Mick's one. got three, hasn't she? I have got three. Oh, I've got three. There you go. Um, what disaster film should we watch? I want to watch a fun one. I want to watch a fun disaster. Yeah, this was the swarm it wasn't again. Fun. I mean, it yeah, was. It was like the. Again? It was a disaster film with all of the things that make disaster films fun stripped out of it. There was no campness. There was no like explosions. It was all very boring, which is how it might be when that stuff happens, but it doesn't necessarily translate yeah. to. Right. Okay. I know who's fun. Pierce Brosnan. Hey. He he's great fun. Let's watch Dante's Peak. Job done. Standard issue for all women.